0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right. So, we finished last week the times they are a changin'. And so I thought it would be helpful maybe to do a one-week stand-alone message teaching on the Old Testament prophetic book of Habakkuk. Now, I pronounce it Habakkuk because I'm from America. I've heard it pronounced Habakkuk if you're from Britain or other places. So you can call it Habakkuk or Habakkuk. Um, I'm going to call it Habakkuk. Um, or you can just call it H if you don't want to pronounce it. So... Um, now, why did I choose Habakkuk? We've seen a lot of increase in violence in America over the past year. What, what, did, what happened this summer with all the Black Lives Matter riots and Antifa riots all across the country? We saw violence. Um, we haven't had a major school shooting in a long time. That's probably because most of the schools aren't in session <laughs> across the country. But it was commonplace to have school shootings a lot. Um... We just see a lot of things happening in our culture. It's kind of a piggyback upon what we were talking about. Just our culture spiraling downhill. And so you may have never heard of Habakkuk, but Habakkuk has a lot of issues to teach us in regards to how we understand chaos in our nation. Because there's chaos in the nation of Israel And Habakkuk the prophet is looking around, and he's kind of shell-shocked, like, what in the world is going on? So here's my question. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, look around at America and are kind of shell-shocked and say, what in the world's going on around here, okay? We kind of have that shell-shocked feeling. We're kind of just flabbergasted we're kind of bewildered. That's the kind of attitude or the, the way that um, Habakkuk approached things in his time. So before we read it, I need to give you some historical background because we're diving into an Old Testament book. We're not as familiar with the Old Testament as we are with the New Testament, and we're definitely not as familiar with the Old Testament minor prophets the way that we probably should be. And so if you remember your history of Israel After King Solomon, his sons were wicked, and it split into two nations. Okay, so there was the northern kingdom, there was the southern kingdom. And so there was kind of political civil war in Israel. And so there was an enemy that was the leading power in the world at this time. It was the nation of Assyria. Um, Its capital city was Nineveh. You remember Jonah went into Nineveh and said, you know, seven days and turn or burn, and then God chose not to destroy Nineveh because they repented. But they had just fallen. Nineveh, the powerhouse, had just fallen to this new nation that was coming in on the rise, and this new nation was Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. And so this powerful nation of Babylon was gaining speed on the horizon. And here's the problem. The Israelites were living as if they could care less about God's judgment. They're not seeing Babylon as a threat. They're going on with life as usual. And so Habakkuk is one of these interesting characters in the Bible because he's in a long stream of people who dared to get mad at God. Did David get mad at God? Did Jeremiah get mad at God? Did Job get mad at God? Did even Moses get mad at God? Okay, so we need to be careful when we say get mad at God, but Habakkuk is going to kind of express some, some anger at the Lord, okay? So, one commentator said it this way, God is the friend of the honest doubter who dares talk to God rather than about God, okay? If you have a problem with God, go directly to God. If you have a problem with somebody, go directly to that person. So Habakkuk goes directly to God and says, God, I have a problem with the things that I'm seeing here, okay? So let's begin. Habakkuk is after Nahum and before Zephaniah, so that helps you find it, right? So if you have not found Habakkuk yet... Please use your table of contents or your, <laughs> however you use it, because it's not a book that we go to often. And, I've, and, and actually, we're probably, I'm not going to do the whole book. There's only three chapters. I'm not going to do every single verse, but we're actually going to do a pretty, pretty, pretty good overview of the book of Habakkuk tonight. So, it's just before the fall of Assyria. And right before the rise of Babylon, this this transition of power between these two major nations that were Israel's um, nemesis. So let's look at verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Okay. This is a very interesting statement. What's an oracle? The word oracle comes from our word oral or oratory. It means a message or a speech. So when you see the oracle of a a prophet, it means their speech, their message, their prophecy. But in this case, it's translated very interestingly. It's not the actual traditional Hebrew word for oracle or message. It's the word burden the burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw, the burden. In other words, this message that he receives from God is a burden, okay? It's a struggle. He did not want to hear what God had to say. So, from the very get-go, we find out that what God's going to reveal to Habakkuk the prophet is probably not going to be something that's going to be comfortable. It's going to be a burden, okay? So, Let's read um, these complaints, because Habakkuk starts with two complaints. Habakkuk's going to give two complaints against God. This is how he starts. He starts with complaining against God, okay? All right, here we go. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. "'O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save?' Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. What's he crying out? O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? He keeps crying out to God. And all he gets is eerie silence. And what does he see all over the place? Violence. There's violence all over the place. There's violence in our nation. And it seems like, God, you're not doing anything about it. He says, you, I'm saying there's violence and you're not saving Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? What does idly look at wrong mean? Why are you being idle, God? Why are you not intervening? Why aren't you doing anything about this? In other words, what's he saying is, things are chaotic and violent in our nation, God, and where are you? I've been crying out for you. I've been looking for answers. God, all I hear from you is silence. And that's not good. Now, have you ever been there before like Habakkuk? When you've gone through a trial and you've cried out to God and he didn't immediately answer your prayer. Now, don't raise your hand, but I'm sure many of us could probably say at one time in our life, we probably felt like, is God really there when I cry out to him? Because I'm going through a problem. I'm going through pain. I'm going through a trial. Is God really there? So it's interesting that the very first thing we see in the book of Habakkuk is Habakkuk's kind of getting in God's face, which in a way should give us a little bit of encouragement because we see a biblical example here that it's okay to go directly to God with our complaints, our hurts, or confusion. We see this all throughout the Psalms. Okay, so here's what I would say. Remember A Few Good Men, that movie with Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson? You can't handle the truth. Okay. God can handle the truth. Okay. God can handle your problems. If you go to him with complaints, if you cry out to him, God can handle it. As a matter of fact, Peter tells us to do that. What does 1 Peter 5, 6-7 say? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You have permission to cast, throw your cares, your anxieties on God because God cares for you. So, you have permission to vent to God. But we need to be careful with that. Because you don't want to stay there. Because God will give an answer sometimes, and the answer that God gives may not be the answer you want to hear. So, what is Habakkuk's chief complaint in this first complaint? God's not doing anything about violence. If you look at chapters 1 and 2 in Habakkuk, the word violence shows up six times. It's a key word. Violence. Violence. There's violence all around me. You're not doing anything about the violence. So we have to ask a question. Okay, what was the violence? What was Habakkuk seeing in the nation of Israel that made him so bothered? Okay, let me give you a little bit of history right before Habakkuk's time. You remember King Josiah? He was the young man, and he was a good king. He, one of his servants goes and cleans out a closet, and they find the book of Deuteronomy that's been hidden all these years, and, oh, yeah, we probably better start obeying the Lord. And so a lot of reforms came under Josiah's reign. He was a faithful king, but he had just recently been killed by the Egyptians in the Battle of Megiddo. And so he was a godly king. He made many reforms and led the nation back to the Lord. Okay, but now the king that's ruling during the time of Habakkuk is Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is probably one of the worst kings in Israel. He did two things. If you go back to Jeremiah chapter 36, he actually cut up the scroll of the Lord, and burned it in a fire. So you want to know a king who burned his Bible? <laughs> Jehoiakim cut up the scriptures, burned them in a fire, and told Jeremiah and his scribe Baruch, I don't want to hear any more of what you have to say. I'm, through, I'm cutting up the scriptures. I'm throwing it in the fire, and if you keep coming to me with God's word, I'm going I'm to kill you. So he's the king that has burned the scriptures, and he is only the only king of Israel who it was said to have actually killed a prophet. In Jeremiah 26 verses 20 through 23. So the violence is coming from the king of Israel. Now what is the king of Israel doing? He's cutting up the scriptures, he's burning the scriptures, and he's killing prophets. That's pretty violent. So the violence is not coming from an outside source. There's no nation that's invading them at this time. Where's the violence coming from? The violence is coming from within the nation, from the very top, down, not from an outside source of opposition. So what's happening here is from the very top to the very bottom, the king is violent, The people are violent. The nation is violent. Basically, there's chaos in Israel. Anarchy. Violence. Out of control. Wackiness. Does this not sound somewhat similar to what's going on in our nation? Do we see violence? Do we see rebellion? Do we see chaos? And what's Habakkuk's response to this? Where are you, God? You're not here. I've been crying out to you. You're not doing anything about the violence. Now, if we continue reading, what we see is pretty shocking. So God gives an answer. Okay, Habakkuk, I'm going to give you an answer. But it's not the answer you want to hear. Okay, so are you ready for this? So let's read verses 5 through 11. And the ESV, if you have an ESV, does a pretty good job of giving you those uninspired headings there. So you got Habakkuk's complaint there in verses 2 through 4. Then you got the Lord's answer in verses 5 through 11. That's the way the structure in the Hebrew is pretty pretty good here. All right, so God's speaking now. He says to Habakkuk, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. "'For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, "'that bitter and hasty nation, "'who march through the breadth of the earth "'to seize dwellings not their own. "'They are dreaded and fearsome. "'Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. "'Their horses are swifter than leopards, "'more fierce than evening wolves.' Their horsemen press proudly on, their horsemen come from afar, they fly like an eagle swift to devour, they all come for violence, all their faces forward, they gather captives like sand, at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh, they laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it, then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. All right. Here's the answer, okay? Okay. God, in his absolute sovereignty, tells Habakkuk to be utterly amazed at what he's going to do. Look at the nations and and be astounded, so I'm going to do something. And even, even if I told you this, you wouldn't believe it, Habakkuk. Okay, so what's Habakkuk thinking? If you're Habakkuk and you're praying to God to end violence, what do you think the answer would be? God's going to come in and end the violence. What does God say? I'm going to raise up a pagan nation, the Chaldeans, otherwise known as the Babylonians, and they're going to come in, and they're going to wreak havoc on you, Israel, and carry you into 70 years of captivity. That's not the answer I wanted to hear. (laughs) I thought you were supposed to get rid of the violence, God. Not let us be overtaken by a foreign power that's going to take us into Babylonian captivity. No wonder it's amazing. No wonder Habakkuk wouldn't believe it. God says in verse 5, I'm sorry, in verse 6, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. I am sovereignly going to bring the Babylonians into the nation. They're going to tear down your wall. They're going to burn your city. And they're going to carry you off into 70 years of captivity. That's the answer, Habakkuk, you've been waiting for. Okay, so if you're Habakkuk, what are you thinking at this point? Sorry I asked, God, because that's not the answer I wanted. What? Yeah, just kidding. Yeah, yeah. So in Habakkuk's mind, so think about this. If it wasn't bad enough that the violence is going on in their own nation, now God's going to bring a violent pagan king and his army to come in and invade. And notice the description there. We We don't need to go into a lot of detail, but he describes the army of Babylon. Almost like, you know, there's this massive army that just comes in and pillages and does whatever they want. And look at that very last thing in verse 11. They sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Their own might is their God. They trust in themselves. They're a powerful nation that's coming. So, here's the confusing thing about this answer. Why would God raise up or ordain a pagan tyrannical nation to come in and overthrow Israel? Why would God end the violence with more violence? Okay, now, when I, took, when I was in, getting my doctoral at Southern Seminary, I took a class in Old Testament, and we had to read a book on um, interpreting Old Testament passages. And Del Ralph Davis, the, the guy that wrote the book, he said, beware of the nasties. And I'm like, what are you talking about? The nasties. He writes that in the Old Testament, there are some passages that are just nasty. They don't make sense. They're ugly. They're confusing. You can't put God in a box. He's like, a lot of pastors want to avoid the nasties because they don't know what to do with them. This is one of those times you're like, what? The answer we'd expect is that God would come in and he would deliver Israel and he would take care of them and he would bring peace and prosperity. But God says, no, actually, because you're so violent, I'm going to punish you by being taken over by a more violent pagan nation. That's not what Habakkuk wanted to hear. That's not what the nation of Israel wanted to hear. Now, during Jeremiah's reign... Um, which is Jeremiah was kind of a a contemporary of Habakkuk. Jeremiah's day, the false prophets were coming in and they were promising optimism for Israel. The the false prophets were coming into Israel and saying, things are great. You guys keep up doing what you're doing. God's not going to judge you. Everything's great in Israel. You don't need to worry about judgment. You don't need to worry about obeying God. Just things are good. So listen to the false prophets in Jeremiah 5.12. They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, this is the false prophets, He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us nor shall we see sword or famine. So the false prophets were coming in and saying, Israel, you just keep on sinning. You keep on rebelling. You keep on engaging in idolatry and violence. God doesn't really care. He's going to do nothing about it. He's not going to bring in judgment. He's not going to bring discipline. You're never going to be overtaken. Everything's great. And then in Jeremiah six, fourteen and 15, they've healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abominations? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At that time, I punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Okay. Okay. So the false prophets were coming into the nation of Israel who was being wicked and said, you have nothing to worry about. Everything's great. Peace, peace. Never going to be overthrown. Nothing bad's going to ever happen. You just continue in your rebellion. You continue disobeying God. You continue down this spiral of anarchy and chaos, and God just kind of hands off and is, is okay with it. That's false prophets. And what's coming now to roost because of Israel's sin? those false prophets were wrong. Because God tells Habakkuk, "Um, because of your violence and your anarchy and your disobedience, I'm bringing in a nation to come discipline you. Now, this was a warning. This should not have taken Israel by surprise. Because if you go back to Deuteronomy especially, everything that happens in Israel's history, God warns them in Deuteronomy. There's a whole section on blessing and curses. And God says, when you get into the promised land, if you do these things right you'll be blessed. If you do these things wrong, you'll be cursed. God gives them fair warning through Moses. And then we find out when they get into the land what happens. So way back in Deuteronomy, way back when Moses has the children of Israel there on the plains of Moab getting ready to cross the Jordan River into the promised land, Moses delivers this message and tells that generation hundreds of years earlier what would happen. So in Deuteronomy 28, 47 through 49, Uh, Moses tells them this because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle. A nation whose language you do not understand. Israel, if you get into the promised land and you live disobediently and you live in idolatry and things go haywire because of your disobedience, I'm going to send in a nation, a foreign nation from afar that's going to swoop in like an eagle and they're going to take you. Now, how is Babylon described here in verse 8? Their horsemen come from afar. What did, what did God say? They're going to come from a far country. They will fly like an eagle swift to devour. So, here's a hard thing to think about. Here's a nasty Okay, to think about. Could God allow or ordain something to happen in our nation... Where he disciplines Christians in a way that we would think unthinkable. What if more laws are passed to prohibit our expression of faith? What if God allows our nation to sink deeper and deeper into depravity? Here's the point. Has God done this before? With his own people? I'm not saying America is God's people But if God did it with his people, I'm not saying he's bound to do it again, but at least we have an example and a warning. So I just posed the question. If a nation descends in so much depravity, so much chaos, so much rebellion, could God say, okay, if that's the way you want to play the game, I could ordain an outside country to come in and just take you over. Say China. China. I'm not saying that this could, I'm not, I'm not being a prophet here. I'm just saying that if it happened to Israel, it could possibly happen here. We do know one thing, though. Does God discipline his people? Yes. Hebrews 12, 6-7. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there who has a father that does not discipline? Okay. At this point, Habakkuk is probably reeling in, in confusion. God, you've been silent. I've cried out to you. You haven't answered. You haven't answered. Where are you, God? There's violence. There's violence. There's violence. There's violence. All of a sudden, God, you come out of nowhere and say, "Here's my answer. I'm sending in the Babylonians to take you over." One of the things we need to understand here is God is absolutely sovereign over all things. Okay, Ephesians 1.11. In Him, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, and this is key. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, look at that sentence. You've got three words there that all pretty much mean the same thing. Why does Paul use three instead of just one? The purpose, the counsel, his will. Why does Paul use three words of the purpose? The counsel is will. Paul is working overtime to show us that God has a sovereign plan. God does not respond to events or people in time and adjust on the fly. Who is raising up the Babylonians to come attack? God is. Now, this is a whole other conversation, and I don't want to go down this path, but here's the conversation. God ordains the Babylonians to come do what they did. Did the Babylonians know that God was doing that? No. They were acting wickedly, doing what they wanted to do. The Babylonians acted wickedly, but they were doing exactly what God wanted them to do because God raised them up, and God will hold them accountable for doing what God made them do. I'm just leaving it at that. Okay, That's a nasty you're going to have to deal with. And I know <laughs> it's a hard one. Now, let's hear Habakkuk's second complaint in verses 12 through 17. Second complaint. What was his first complaint? God, you are silent. Where are you? There's violence. Now, let's look at his second complaint. So here's, and and the ESV does a good job here at Habakkuk's second complaint. Verse 12, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you've ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook, he drags them out with his net, he gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Okay, what's going on here? Without going into a lot of detail, because remember, we're doing an overview here tonight, I can't get into every detail, in essence, this second complaint basically is God, the first one was, God, where are you? The second one is, God, you're tolerating this evil and you're not punishing it quickly. Why is it happening? Number one, it was you were silent and you're not there. And number two is, if you are there, you're not punishing, you're not punishing <clears throat> the, 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 the wickedness, the violence, and the way I want you to do it very quickly. In his first complaint, the issue was that God appeared silent and didn't answer prayer. The second one is a lack of action. But, but Habakkuk does something that a lot of times you'll see in the Psalms. A lot of times you'll see when somebody launches a complaint against God, what they often do is they, they tell God about who he is. They try to rem- like, God, I need to be reminded of who you are because I need the assurance that you're a sovereign, holy God. So look at what he does in verses 12 and 13. He gives some great theology about God's character. Notice what he says there. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? Are you not from everlasting? God's the eternal God. He says, O Lord. He calls God by his covenant name, Lord. In your Bible, it should be in all caps, L-O-R-D. Is it in all caps there? When you see LORD in all caps in your Old Testament, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh, the covenant name of God. But notice what else he says, "He's the Holy One. He's my covenant God. He's everlasting." Look at verse the end of verse 12, "Oh O oh rock! You're my rock." God is a, a rock." Genesis 18. Twenty-five. Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Yes. Mm. Hmm. Especially when Moses hit the rock in the Old Testament and the water came out, Paul says that was a type of of Christ, the rock. Here's something we need to understand, okay? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's a rhetorical question that's meant to have an answer. What's the answer to that? Yes, he will. So here's the point. When we don't understand what God's doing, and when we see chaos and violence and weirdness all around us, what do we have to remember? God is the judge of all the earth. He's going to do what's right. Now, here's the problem. How and when. He will do right, but it may be at the end of the age, at the final judgment. Or it may be immediate in time. One thing you can count on is God will right all the wrongs in his own way, in his own time. He will do what is right. He will do what is just according to his timetable because he's the rock. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is so what does Habakkuk do? He appeals to God's character. He says, God, you're holy, you're righteous, you're just. I, here's, what, here's basically what Habakkuk's saying. I may not understand why you're sending the Babylonians in to take us over. And you don't owe me an answer, God, as to why you're doing it. All I know is that you're holy You're just, you're right, you're good, you're my rock. Does God owe us an answer for what he does? No. But in the same breath, can we trust him? That's where it gets difficult. We can trust God even though he doesn't always give us the answers. Because the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Okay? Now, let's go into Habakkuk's... um, I'm sorry, the answer. Well, look at, look at chapter two, verse one, and this is what Habakkuk says. "I will take my st-. now Habakkuk is, I will take my stand at my watch post, station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint." What does Habakkuk say? I'm going to wait for the answer. I've given my second complaint. First complaint, God, you're not answering prayer. How does God answer prayer? I'm sending the Babylonians. Second complaint, God, you're a holy God. I may not understand all that you're doing. You seem to kind of be tolerating violence, but I know that you're, you're the judge of all the earth and you're going to do what's right. I'm just going to wait for your answer. Okay, what is God's answer? Here we go, verse 2. The Lord answered me. Write the vision. The answer comes in one of the most important quoted verses in the New Testament. The righteous shall live by faith. What does this mean? Okay, let's, let's, let's say what it doesn't mean. Are you and I righteous by what we do as far as good works? No. No. How are we declared righteous when we merely trust or believe in Jesus? When we believe in Jesus, God credits or counts or imputes or reckons, whatever banking term you want to use, the righteousness of Christ to our account. And because we had faith in Jesus, we are counted as righteous. So this is talking about faith. So, in, in the immediate context here, the immediate context here to Habakkuk, God is saying to Habakkuk, before we get to the New Testament, right here in Habakkuk, God is saying, just trust me. Have faith in me. The righteous will live by faith. You've got to live by faith. Trust me. You may not have all the answers, but you can trust that I'm a sovereign, holy, good God. Trust me. Now, what happened to Abraham? What did God promise Abraham? You're going to have many descendants. They're going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sands on the seashore. Abraham was about 100 years old, and he didn't have any kids yet. He's like, wait a minute, what's happening here? God takes him out in Genesis 15, verses 5 through 6. The Lord brought him outside. To, this is Abraham. said, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. So I'm sure Abraham started, okay, one, two, three, four, 25, when I got to 25 million, he kind of got, you know, you're not going to be able to number them. The point is you can't. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So it was said of Abraham, he believed the Lord and it counted to him as righteousness. So when we have faith, In Christ, we are counted righteous on account of Christ's righteousness being given to us as a gift. So where are these three times? So we have the righteous shall live by faith. It's quoted three times in the New Testament. Twice by Paul and once in Hebrews. And if you believe Paul wrote Hebrews, you could say three times. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. But at least we know Paul wrote Romans and Galatians. So Romans 1, 16 and 17. The thesis of the book of Romans. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, Paul, where was it written? As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul, where did you get that? Habakkuk 2, 4. Paul quotes it here in saying that when you believe in the gospel, when you believe in Jesus, when you trust in Christ, you are counted righteous. Okay? I've already said this, but it's on your screen there. It's on your, it's on your page. By faith, when we trust in Jesus alone as Savior and Lord, our sins are transferred to him and his righteousness is transferred to us so that we're no longer under Condemnation, but free. Okay, Galatians 3 10 through 11. This is important teaching here. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now let's just stop right there. What does it mean to rely on the works of the law? and you're under a curse. Basically what Paul's saying is, if you try to get right with God, and you want to do it by obeying God's law, the Ten Commandments, you can do that if you want to try it, but what do you have to do? You have to be 100% perfect 100% of the time, and never break any of the Ten Commandments ever. And if you can do that, you'll be right with God. What's the problem? Nobody can do that. He says you're under a curse, meaning you're under condemnation. If you're trying to earn favor with God by obeying the Ten Commandments or doing good works, you are no never going to have a right relationship with God. And he goes on to say, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. You can never be in a right standing with God, you can never be declared righteous, you can never be not guilty by relying on the works of the law. For what's the reason why? What does he quote there? The righteous shall live by faith. There's Habakkuk again. Again, what's Paul saying here? Paul is saying. We don't earn a right relationship with God by doing good works or obeying the Ten Commandments. Instead, we're accepted by God and forgiven solely on the basis of trust in Christ alone. Okay, So the first two uses of this passage of Scripture by Paul are in context to saving faith. When you believe in Christ, his righteousness is credited to you, you're declared righteous. The way the writer of Hebrews uses it is more about living out your faith over the long haul. Trusting in God over the long haul. So the last place it's quoted is in Hebrews 10, 38-39. A little different context than Paul. So he starts out there in verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith... And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are those who shrink, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What the writer of Hebrews is basically saying there is: we are the people who trust in God and his promises. We don't shrink back in fear, but endure to the end through his grace alone. Now, obviously. When God gave this message to Habakkuk, Habakkuk had no concept of who Jesus the Messiah of Nazareth was going to be. So was Habakkuk's faith in Christ knowingly who it was? Not necessarily. He was saved by faith alone in the coming promise of the Messiah. So Habakkuk was trusting in the word of the Lord. But the the same thing is true for both us and Habakkuk. Just a little bit different time period. For us and for Habakkuk, it's always the same. Trust in Christ alone. It's not in good works or obeying the law, but eternal life comes through believing or placing our trust in Christ. And when we do that, our sins are credited to him and his righteousness is credited to us. So that the God of the universe, what's he been saying about this God? This holy God, this rock, this God whose eyes cannot look upon evil, can look upon us with great pleasure and declare us not guilty on account of Christ. So really, it's, a, it's the gospel there that, that Habakkuk hears. He says, listen, Habakkuk, you may not understand my ways. You may think I'm crazy by sending the Babylonians in. But trust me. Have faith in me. Okay? Now, the rest of chapter 2, verses 6 through the end... Are basically um, pronouncements of woes on those who do evil, those who make idols, those who shed innocent blood, the greedy, the extortioner, those who get drunk, those who are violent, um, and so basically, he's proclaiming a um, a woe or a curse upon those that do evil, and those that continue to do this violence. But I want you to notice um, the end of verse 20, or the, actually the end of the chapter, verse 20. What does it say? So really, let's just read it. Well, it's a lot there. Let's just think about this. There, there, people are running around. Everyone is running around in, a, in, in frenetic violence, greed, sexual immorality, idolatry, and God issues a strong command for the entire earth. What, is the end of, what does verse 20 say? But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Do not keep running around in violence and chaos and greed and immorality and idolatry, disobeying me. God just says, entire world Stop. I'm in my holy temple. Shut up for a minute. That's really what God says. I mean, we see this in Psalm Psalm 11:4. "The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of man. Now when it says, the Lord is in his holy temple," that's talking about heaven. God is sovereignly ruling from heaven. As absolute Lord of the universe, he's over all things. And what does he say to the earth? All the earth. He's not talking just to the Israelites. He says everybody, Babylonians, Assyrians, Canaanites, Edomites, Moabites, Israelites, everybody, the entire earth, keep silence before him. Literally in the Hebrew text, if you read it, shut your mouth in silence or a big fat hush. Hush your mouth. Okay. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Okay, what's, what's, about, what's been kind of the rhythm of Habakkuk up to this point? I'm crying out, I'm crying out, I'm crying out, I'm crying out, I don't hear an answer, I don't hear an answer. God answers and says, here's the answer, it's not what you want to hear, I'm sending the Babylonians in to destroy you, to send you into captivity. I don't like that answer, God, it seems like you're holy, and you're good, and you're wise, and I know that you're going to do right, I just don't understand it. And God says, listen, trust me. And then everybody's doing things that are crazy, 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 and finally God just says, let's just stop this for a moment, let's put an end to this madness. So after complaining, God really, this is, this is to Habakkuk too. Habakkuk, it's time for you to wait, to be quiet and to wait in silence upon the Lord. We know Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. It's okay to vent. It's okay to complain. But at some point, you have to just wait upon the Lord and say, I'm going to trust in your sovereignty, God. I'm going to be quiet. You wait in silence. You no longer do the talking. (laughs) You basically say, you know what? I'm I'm going to submit myself to God's sovereignty and understand I'm not in control And I'm going to realize that he has every right to do things in his way and is his timetable and with his agenda. I may not understand it. I may think it's not fair. But at the end of the day, who's God? God is God and we are not. And sometimes the best act of worship is just to be quiet and wait on him. You, you trust that God will do what he says he's going to do. Psalm 76, 8. From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. The earth was still. So let's bring in some New Testament passages that talk about waiting in silence or being joyful or being patient 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances even when you don't understand what God's doing. Give thanks, wait patiently. Hebrews 12.28 Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Sometimes we just need to shut our mouths and say God you're sovereign. I'm not. I'm going to be thankful. I'm going to worship you in awe. I'm going to trust you, even though I don't have all the answers. Now, that's the hardest place to be. Because what, what are we at the core of our beings? And, 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 and please nod your head, because you know you are. We are control freaks, right? I need to be in control. I need to have the answers. I got to drive the bus. Jesus, take the wheel, except for when I'm in charge. You know, we want to be in control. Whether we admit it or not, we want to be in control. And when God's in control, that means we're not. And that means you're in a position of vulnerability. You're in a position of trust. You're in a position of, of hoping and waiting on the Lord when you don't understand all the details. And you just have to say, you know what? I'm going to be silent. I'm going to wait. I'm going to trust God is good, I'm going to be thankful, I know he's going to work it out, I may not know how, but it doesn't do any good to keep fighting against God. If you fight against God, who's going to win? God's going to win. Okay. So, that's the first two chapters. And Habakkuk has kind of asked two big questions Why is all this violence? Why are the righteous suffering? Why is there chaos all around me? Why does, God, how come you're not judging it immediately? How come you're not doing something about it? And number two, why why do you often appear silent, God, when I'm crying out to you? It's like you're not there. And now we get to chapter 3, and it's actually a prayer of Habakkuk. And it's according to the Shiginoth. Don't ask me what the Shiganoth is, but it's according to Shigyanoth, which is probably a musical term. This was played on an instrument. Okay? This is probably it's like a psalm. Okay, so he go it goes Habakkuk goes from prophecy to a psalm. Because this is a prayer and it's almost like a, a psalm because it was played on an instrument, whatever the Shigginoth was. Okay, so let's read Habakkuk's prayer request. O Lord, I've heard the report of you in your work. O Lord, do I fear? In the midst of the years, revive it. In the the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. What is Habakkuk saying? God, I've heard about you, what you've done in the past. You're telling me to wait. You're telling me to be patient. What have you done in the past? I, I, I know that you let the children of Israel go through the Red Sea. I know that you worked to help David kill Goliath. I know that you've done all these amazing things. I've heard the report of you. Lord, I I stand in fear. But notice his request. What's his request? In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. What's he saying? God, you did great things in the past. Do them now. Okay? For Habakkuk, this meant that he wanted God to deliver the people from Babylon... Just like he delivered the people from Egyptian bondage. What's he saying? I'm gonna wait for you, God, but I'm gonna ask a bold request. Those big things you did in the past, would you do it now? Okay, have you ever prayed that prayer? God, those big things you did in the past, can you do it in my life? Can you do it in my church? So I'm just going to ask you a question. You don't have to answer this. This is something for you to think about for your individually, for your family, for our church. What are we asking God to do that is amazing in our midst? Do we want to see God's power in our life now? Would God bring revival and do an amazing thing that can only be explained by his power alone? In the midst of the years, revive it. He's almost saying, God, bring revival. Okay, let me just go on a tangent here. Sean Cole's opinion. Step out of a back get into Sean Cole's opinion. Okay. In our nation's history, we've had two Great Awakenings. The First Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards. The Second Great Awakening in the 1800s. We really haven't had a major long-term... Like the First Great Awakening lasted like nine years. And it was nationwide. I'm not saying there's going to be a third great awakening, but I think we should pray for a third great awakening. Because here's my opinion. Okay, this may be Debbie Downer. This is Sean Cole's opinion. There's only two there's only two paths for America. It's either going to go down the dumps real fast, or God's going to bring revival. Now, I pray for the second. (laughs) Is God obligated to bring revival? No. Is God obligated to answer Habakkuk's prayer here? But Habakkuk prays it. He says, God, you've done amazing things in the past. I know you can do them now. Would you please do that in our day? So my question is, are you praying for God to do a work in a nation that's gone out of control The way he did in the past. There's nothing wrong with praying that prayer. But here's the important thing that Habakkuk says there at the end of verse 2 In wrath, remember mercy. What do we deserve? What did Israel deserve? What's wrath? God's judgment. And God says, You're getting judgment. Babylon's coming in and taking you over. So Habakkuk does not sugarcoat what's happening. He basically says, God, I know that we deserve wrath, but will you please remember mercy? So what do we deserve as sinners? What is God's wrath ultimately? Hell, condemnation, eternal separation from God. That's what we deserve. So what's Habakkuk praying here? He's basically saying, God, please, 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 don't give us what we deserve. We deserve to be wiped off the map. Please show mercy. Please show me mercy. And that's the prayer. You want to know what the people talk about the sinner's prayer like praying the sinner's prayer when you have a person that you're witnessing to it's kind of a formulaic thing repeat after me repeat okay do you want to know what the sinner's prayer is in the bible it's right here in wrath remember mercy i deserve wrath please show me mercy have mercy on me oh god so what's the opposite of wrath mercy what is wrath getting what you deserve. What is mercy? God giving you what you don't deserve or withholding what you do deserve. And so Habakkuk understands this and he understands the character of God. And so do other passages of scripture. So um, what does David pray after he commits adultery with Bathsheba and has her husband Uriah killed and Nathan the prophet comes to him In Psalm 51, verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Now, let me just stop right there. What did King David deserve for adultery and murder? The death penalty. Death, the death penalty. Just be stoned. So, what's David praying when he says, God, have mercy on me? What's he saying? God, please don't let them take me out and stone me in front of my nation that I'm the king of. Isaiah 54, 7. For a brief moment, I deserted you. This is God speaking. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. For a brief moment, I deserted you. And then Micah 7, 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Now in verses 3-15, through in this song, in this prayer, he goes on to confess some great attributes of God, basically about, really about him being the creator, being there when the creation happened and just his power um, and then in verse 16 we find the response of Habakkuk to the reality of God's answer with using the Babylonians to punish the Israelites how does he how does he respond when he, what's the ultimate answer here so here's the point when, I, when Habakkuk prays for God to answer, what is the answer? I'm going to send the Babylonians to take you over. That's the answer. <laughs> and Habakkuk struggles with it, comes to grip with it. But then in verse 16, I hear you, God, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. What's he saying? I don't like the answer, God. It's scary. I'm trembling, my lip is quivering, I got this rotten feeling in my heart. I don't know when it's going to happen, but you've said it's going to happen. So I'm just going to wait patiently for this nation to come in and invade. Okay? Can you feel Habakkuk's pain? He's trembling. And That's a good thing because Isaiah 66, two says, All these things my hand has made, so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit... And trembles at my word. Okay, this is not the answer, again, that Habakkuk expected from the Lord. He didn't expect God to send the Babylonians to punish his own people. And this brought him fear, but yet at the same time, he was a man who lived by faith. The righteous will live by faith. So, as a man of faith, what does Habakkuk do there? I. We'll wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon us." I don't know when, but I know the Babylonians are coming. So in a way here, it's kind of scary for Habakkuk because he's in a position of uncertainty. God's answered him saying, Babylonians are coming in to destroy you. Did God tell Habakkuk when it was going to happen? Just that it was going to happen. So he's just kind of waiting for this foreign power to come in. But he also knows that God's going to do it and God's plan can't be stopped. God is in control. So we get to the end of Habakkuk. And then Lamentations 3.26 says this, It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I wait quietly, Habakkuk says. Now, this is probably the most famous part of Habakkuk. You've probably heard the end of the Habakkuk. So here's, here's, the, here's the ending of it. Verse 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Now, we don't quite understand all that Habakkuk says here, but we, we are an agricultural society out here in rural northeastern Colorado, where a lot of people depend on ranching and farming to make a living. So Habakkuk goes in ascending order of least devastating to most devastating things. Um, so he starts with the fig tree. Okay? Well, if the fig tree didn't blossom, they could probably still survive without figs. And then if the olives didn't yield, they could probably live without olive oil. They used olive oil to cook a lot of things with. They could probably survive. But if their flocks got cut off, if there's no cattle or sheep or goats, that would be economic ruin for the entire nation. Just like probably in America. Think about it. What would, what would happen if all, the, if all the farms went belly up and all the cattle died in America? Synthetic. Bill Gates will give us some... Synthet- we we'll all become vegans, I guess. It would be pretty devastating to our economy. So this is some major... So basically what Habakkuk is saying is if our nation ascends into economic ruin and we get invaded by a foreign army... What would you expect the natural human response to be? I'm just going to go commit suicide because this is, I mean, really, this is terrible. This is the worst. How can it get any worse? That's the human response. What does he say that's so counterintuitive? Verse 18, yet I will what? How does he respond? (laughs) With joy. Okay. Okay. That makes no sense. Joy. I've given you my definition of joy. It's not on your sheet, but I'll just give it to you. Joy is a deep seated, not surface level, deep seated sense of contentment and peace, regardless of the circumstances, where you trust in the absolute sovereignty of God to do what He says He's going to do. It's not happiness. Doesn't, the circumstances can be bad, but it's something that God puts deep in your heart. That's a hard thing to say. Think about that. Basically saying, if, our, if, our, if, if I lose everything and our economy collapses and we're taken over by a foreign nation, I'm going to rejoice. Ecclesiastes 7.14 says this. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. That's easy, right? In the day of prosperity, to be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything at that will be after him. Be joyful in both the day of adversity and the day of prosperity. It's hard to be joyful in the day of adversity. What should we be doing when trials come? Romans 5, 3-5. through More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. What does suffering produce in us? Endurance and character. God is working working in us to be more like Jesus. James 1, 2-3, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So I'm going to ask you a question. I've asked this before. Don't answer it. Think about it. If everything was stripped from you, your family, your home, your job, your health, would you still be satisfied and joyful if all you had left was your salvation? Now, don't answer that. If you're quick to answer that, you're lying to yourself, okay? Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen. But what I am saying is that there could be times that you go through that are trying, that are difficult. Can you find joy in the Lord as your strength? Notice what Habakkuk confesses. What's the very last words of the book? Verse 19. Besides to the choir master with stringed instruments. Okay, that's the very last words of the book. But what, what are Habakkuk's last words? God, the Lord is my strength. Now, this is the only place outside of a few psalms where this expression is used to address God, God the Lord. Now notice it's not in all caps. Is the word Lord in all caps there or is it is the Lord, God. the Lord God. Okay, but is it the Lord God or God the Lord? The Lord God is Lord in all caps. Shouldn't be it's 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 the word Adonai. Sovereign Lord. God the Lord. So it's an interesting expression. Yahweh Adonai. It emphasizes God's personal name, his title, his sovereignty, his majesty. What does he say? The sovereign basically saying the sovereign majestic Lord is my what? He's my strength. The Lord is my strength. Nehemiah 8.10. What does it say? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Psalm one. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. What does God make me do? He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Okay? It's a female deer that can go jumping around in the high rocks and not fall, be safe, be secure, the high places. Psalm 1833 he made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights what does this mean what it means is no matter what types of trials you go through god will always be your solid rock that will protect you and what ha- what happens if a deer stumbles on a high place it falls right Basically, what Habakkuk is using with this analogy is God's going to never let you fall or falter. He's always going to be there for you. He's not going to let you stumble. You're going to have setbacks. You're going to have adversity. Things may not go the way you want to, but ultimately, through it all, God will be your rock and he will keep you secure. In other words... God promises to keep us from stumbling and make sure that we get to the finish line. We get to heaven. Jude 1, 24 and 25. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So we live in a world that's very similar to Habakkuk's. Chaotic, violent. We often question, God, where are you in our nation Sometimes we don't get the answer. I'm not saying that God's going to bring in a foreign nation to overtake us, but the whole point is is that Habakkuk says, listen, we deserve wrath. Give us mercy. We're going to live by faith. If everything's stripped away from us, we're still going to trust in the Lord. He's our rock. He's our salvation. He's going to put our feet on the high places. So the question is, will the year 2021 be a year where the sovereign Lord is your strength? Will you find ultimate joy in Christ alone as your treasure? And I want to end with Paul's words from Romans eight twenty-eight through 39 This is the greatest promise we can hear, and I think it's a parallel to how Habakkuk ends. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son... But gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. I want to read verse 14 of chapter 2. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the ultimate end. God's glory overcoming the entire earth on that final day when he brings things to an end in the new heaven and the new earth. In the meantime, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ no matter what happens. Verse 20, the Lord's in his temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. So now you knew more about Habakkuk tonight than you did when you walked into this place. Do you guys have any questions? we got a lot of time left tonight. If not, you just get to get out early and relax. Any questions about Habakkuk or what we talked about tonight? Um, We don't know the time period. We do know that um, the the prophecy, like at the introduction of my Bible here, it says Habakkuk was probably written about 640 to 615 B.C., just before the fall of Assyria and the rise of Babylon. The prophecy would be fulfilled several decades after Habakkuk in 586. So 586 is when, that's the key, 586 is the key year that Babylon came in and ransacked Jerusalem. So we're talking a couple of decades. Now, the text doesn't tell us the time frame between when, he, when God answered and not, and so we know from history that he had to wait at least 20, 20 years, probably. 20, 30 Well, that's, yeah, in the immediate context of the prophecy, uh, Habakkuk's probably sitting there every day. He's probably sitting there every day looking for the army. Okay, where's the Babylonian army? Where's it coming? God said it's coming. Oh, good. They didn't come today. Wake up. Okay, they didn't come. So, I mean, this went on for many years, okay? The point is God said it was going to happen. He didn't say when it was going to happen. All we know is Habakkuk God didn't give Habakkuk that information. If God would have given Habakkuk that information, what, have, what have most people would have done? They would have gone about their merry business, and then like two days before it happened, they'd really get serious about it, because they knew when it would happen. So I think God purposely doesn't give us times, because we need to live by faith in Him, and just trust Him at His word. My Bible says in here that the date that it written was about 600 B.C. About? Well, mine says six fifteen to six forty. I'd have to go back and re- sometimes dating Old Testament books is a little bit difficult. Um, so that's sometimes like about with with a, a general time frame. There we do know the date though. Five eighty six B.C. is the date that that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar sent the troops in, and they they that's when Jerusalem fell. Five eighty six. So even if it was around six, even if it was around six hundred, five eighty six. What's that? Twenty four. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that, that, is a, that is a definite date in history. Um, so it's, it's a few decades before it happened. <laughs> yeah, the fall of Nineveh is pretty close. This was right, right before the fall of Nineveh. So it's a transition of power between the Assyrians that were fading off. And God used the Assyrians to punish the northern kingdom. And here, this is the southern kingdom God using the Babylonians to punish the southern kingdom. Because both kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdoms, both of them became disobedient to God. The northern kingdom have already been, they'd already been pretty much carted off, and, and, and pretty much already they were worse off. The northern the northern tribes were really bad, and then the southern the southern kingdom, uh, Judah and Benjamin were um, they got to the point where they were so wicked that God disciplined them with exile, seventy years. Anything else? Yes, Connie. Uh, uh-huh. How are the conditions Yeah, the conditions, yeah. How the, the question is for the Facebook group and YouTube is that if there's a third great awakening, what were the conditions before the first grade the first couple? Um, the first great awakening was kind of like before the Revolutionary War, and there was a lot of Basically, what happened was the Puritans had come to America with the Plymouth, and they kind of brought really strong convictions. And the generations that grew up after them kind of got relaxed. And so during like Jonathan Edwards' period, there was a lot of recklessness among the youth. You go back and read accounts, they called it tavern hopping. There was a lot of tavern hopping. Carousing at bars, okay? So there were coarse language, tavern hopping, and a lot of sexual immorality among the younger generation. So there was basically unruliness among the youth. And so that was, that was kind of one of the issues that was related to the first great awakening. Um, usually when you look at the history of awakenings, there, there's usually some type of national catastrophe or some type of major period of disobedience. But here's usually what's happened with Great Awakenings or revivals. There's there's always usually a period of extraordinary prayer. God's people are really serious about prayer. And usually there's been strong preaching from the pulpits and people not afraid to talk about truth. So when you have churches preaching truth and people praying, I'm not saying that's a formula, but God sees fit to say, Basically, what a revival is, is God blesses the ordinary things that we normally do. He doesn't do anything wacky or weird. He blesses the ordinary things we do. So in times of revival, he blesses the preaching and the prayers and the worship of his people with just a greater intensity of salvations and repentance and things like that. And so I would say you can't manufacture a third great awakening. You can pray for it. You can cry out for God, and you can be faithful, and you can be ready. But you can't, you can't move God's hand by, mo- by obligating him to do it. Um, some people feel like, you can, like if you do these techniques and steps, God will bring revival if you just do, 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 do. Well, you may do those things, and God may not. Or God may surprise you and just bring it. He's sovereign over it. I think normally, though, the normal way of looking at it over the history of the world in different places has been extraordinary prayer. The church was called to brokenness and repentance and holiness. There was true gospel preaching. It it wasn't a complacent worldly church. The culture might have been that way but the church was very aware of its own sin and the need for God to do a work. Well, Like in the book of Revelation, which I was studying last night with our group in chapter 3, the the church in Sardis, Jesus says, wake up. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead. So some churches may not be aware that they're in sleepy land, and they need to be awakened out of that. Does that answer your question, Connie? Okay. Yes. Yeah. But hmm can't our are also being very Yes. We're accepting Yep. Everybody, you're in your homes. And, yeah. And now, what is going to happen? Well, the sin gets darker, the gospel shines brighter. Yeah. So, either we're going to have a like poor group where God cleanses His church. Yeah. Yeah. God cleanses His church. And then either I agree with you. I think that leads to revival. Right? Yeah. Or, God's church God. is always going to be. As I'm reading, studying the seven churches in Revelation, it's interesting because Jesus says to the seven churches, you're doing all these things that are wrong, but you have some who have not done. You've got a remnant. You've got a small group. So, no matter what happens, God's always going to have His people. God's going to have His church. Numbers, influence-wise, probably not going to be anything great. Um, So, yeah. Well, Let's yeah, Brent. I was going to say that I think when we read something like that, okay, or so many other Old Testament books, when we see the pain and suffering that they went through, it's pretty easy in my mind to say, like for Jonah, say, well, okay, so he felt this way, and then after it, then things kind of got better. But and to me, I kind of refer to the same thing in my own life. Is the fact that I have to look back and say, when I look in reference to the Bible, the times that were that we read about—it's simple. It's simple for us to almost gloss it over. Is that there's a beginning and there's an end. But the fact is, those are people, and those are people that have incredible pain. Sure. And and we have to. The worst times ever, and every one of us has had horrible times in our lives where we were ready to die. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have to look at when we look at some of the Old Testament prophets and the things yeah. they went through. Yeah. Real people, yeah, and it's interesting. Remember what I started out with? What's the very first words of Habakkuk? The burden that Habakkuk heard. It was a burden. Now you know why it was a burden. He didn't want to hear it. (laughs) Okay. All right. Again, next week we're not meeting because of spring break. The following week I'm teaching the youth group. Pastor Andrew's doing an adult conference in here. And then the week after we're going to start the book of Jonah, which is another Old Testament prophet. And that'll be fun. And that'll be a good study. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Habakkuk. Very timely. Um, It helps us understand your sovereignty. Understand... It's kind of how you operate, Lord. Help us to be silent before you. Help us to know that you're in your holy temple. Help us to call out for your mercy. Thank you that you've not given us wrath, but you've, you've poured that out on Jesus in our place. And thank you that we're righteous because of faith in Christ. Um, help us to trust in you and help us to have the joy of the Lord as our strength. Uh, burn these truths of a backing to our hearts this week. As we glorify you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you guys for your attentiveness to Habakkuk.